Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the Cattleman's Call podcast. Lane Nordland, happy to be having you join us here today. Thank you for answering the Cattleman's Call uh, on the phone today. Our guest is ca- calling in from the great state of Arizona. Dr. Dean Fish is joining us. Dean, uh, how are things shaping up? Are, are you self-distancing as the coronavirus continues to have its impact here today as, as we uh, chat on the phone? Um, I sure am. So, hello, Lance. Good to, good to visit with you and good to be on the show. I think you're doing a really, really great thing here. So, before I get into what we're doing, but um, yes, I'm about one mile from the U.S.-Mexico border here in southern Arizona, you know, and, and inherently, I think our you know, at least my career choice and a lot of us in the cattle and beef industry, um, you know, probably practice self-distancing <laughs> as a, as a daily thing. And, you know, I want to be a little bit careful on that because I, I, I don't want to get into, um, that we're already getting deep here, but, you know, I don't want to get into kind of an ag morality complex, um, you know, because there's a lot of people that truly, truly are, are having a tough time dealing with, you know, working from, you know, different place than where they normally are working and so forth. And so, um, anyway, but we're getting along real, real well down here. I think, um, we're going to kind of ride it out and, and, um, see what happens. Well, I think that's what we all need to do. And I, I do know that a lot of farm and ranch parents are, are lucky to have a little bit of help, especially up here in Montana. Our cancel or our schools have been canceled for two weeks. So I know there's going to be a lot of night calving going on for, for some elementary and high school kids that'll get to get to work more from, from the operation and learn from their moms and dads and just, just make uh, the best out of this situation, no, no doubt. But uh, uh, Dean, obviously the cattleman's call. We, we like to sit down and have a over the over over the kitchen counter type conversation, just like we're sitting there at, at the ranch house. But obviously, uh, travel and restrictions on travel are are uh, are limiting my my opportunities to actually produce this podcast in person. But you know what? We always uh, are able to adapt. That's what we do out in ranch country. We adapt and we figure out how to do things the best that we can. And as I, as I join you here today on the podcast. Uh, Let's just talk about uh, where you're from. What what is your nearest town? Uh, uh, where where's your mailing address there in uh, Arizona? I know it's probably not Mexico. What what's that Arizona zip code for you? Yeah, so I'm I am um, currently um, located just north of Nogales, Arizona. And that's a town kind of right in the center part of Arizona, um, on the on the center part east west of Arizona, right on the U.S. Mexico border. And so I am, um, I'm really, really fortunate. I am managing and running cows on the ranch that I moved to when I was seven. And so I've got a long history and, you know, of course, well, my dad moved there and he drug me along with him and the rest of the family. But um, anyway, I'm real, real fortunate to be on that little piece of ground there. And I've, I've added a couple other little leases along with it. And so I am um, in the semi-arid um, kind of desert transition zone. So when you think of Arizona, um, you think of sand dunes and saguaro cactus and, you know, everything wanting to poke you and, and, and so forth. And I'm in a little bit different zone. I'm about 3,800 foot elevation, about a 16 to 18 inch precip zone, pretty productive grassland, um, a good mix of federal, state and private land in my part of the world, which um, the most productive use of that land is for cattle grazing. And um, so that's what I'm fortunate enough to get to participate in. Dean, many of our listeners may be familiar with you from your participation in the stockmanship and stewardship programs, your uh, work with the Beef Quality Assurance Program, or or just seeing some uh, cattle handling demonstrations and whatnot that takes place every year during the Cattle Industry Convention in the demo arena. Uh, how, how did you really get your start uh, uh, get, getting out there? And uh, uh, did you know from when you were seven years old moving to this operation that uh, being involved in, in livestock production was was going to be your career path forever? Well, that, that's a good question, Lane. And, and, I, and I try to identify where the sickness really started. But um, I, <laughs> I, ever, ever since I, was, I can remember, I have craved, craved everything there is about a horse or a cow or ranching or cowboys or just this lifestyle. Um, you know, I was an avid reader. I read everything I get my hands on, you know, that, 
you know, fiction, nonfiction um, about cows and ranching and cowboying and riding, you know, tough horses and, you know, all of that stuff. And I, I have created this lifestyle um, since I can remember. I was um, fortunate. Um, I was I was actually adopted and the family that I that I that adopted me was a ranching family. And so I was able to, to really just again, it's um, kind of divine intervention there, I think. But um, I was able to grow up in that environment and learn from, you know, from my parents how to care for the land and, and to be involved in the industry. And I was involved in 4-H growing up. And so I raised cattle and I had a little cattle herd. Um, you know, that I developed through, through that experience. And so that, that kind of helped me get through college. And, and, um, I knew that at one point I wanted to be a vet, but then I figured I wanted to work with healthy animals and plus I wasn't really too smart. And so, um, you know, chemistry and all that stuff <laughs> anyway. So I, I majored in animal science, studied animal science and went kind of the production option and, um, you know, was going to go and run a feedlot or sell pharmaceutical you know animal pharmaceuticals or do something like in in but still be involved in the industry um my dad managed this place so i didn't really have a place to go back to or a family place to go back to to you know to make a living so um anyway when i was getting close to graduation um i interviewed i was also in college i worked at at our meat science laboratory and uh, really liked the, the meat industry as well and so i interviewed for for a company back east and they decided not to hire me and so my one of my advisors said well take the GRE and you know maybe you ought to go to grad school and so so I did that and luckily had good enough scores on that to get accepted into grad school and kind of went down the track of reproductive physiology and and um, got a master's in that went into extension and during my extension career um, with the University of Arizona I I completed a PhD also in reproductive physiology and and so so anyway was able to to have a good foundation of science um, but combined with pra- my practical background and then with extension a- application of that science so kind of a real neat little blend of different you know opportunities I've been fortunate to be involved in so anyway we're, we're getting around to your question I mean eventually <laughs> well you know I'm going to interrupt you because yeah. you mentioned you get your BS your MS and your PhD all from the University of Arizona you know in the academic world they would say they would say that you're inbred in, in your I'm education triple inbred. absolutely so, so are you absolutely. inbred or are you line one <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask <laughs> the presentation I'm given, but um, you know, it, it's of course inbreeding if it if it if it doesn't work, and um, <laughs> you know, line breeding if it does. So, um, I, and, and that was purely purely a function of economics. I grew up at you know kind of a poor Mexican ranch kid, and, and um, I was fortunate to get some scholarships through 4-H and through organizations like the Cowbells, and we have Cow Industry Foundation mm-hmm. and so forth and only and, and not not there's anything wrong with it but the place i could afford to go was university of arizona hey those and land so grants that they're a reason that all of us all of us farm and ranch kids can go to school absolutely absolutely and so when i was completing my my bachelor's and my advisor asked me to stay on as as a, as a master student that was i was um, married had a young daughter um and so that was again a function of of economics. I had a pretty good job. I was managing a lumberyard um, while going to school, and so that that kind of kept me hooked there. And then um, when I went into extension, um, somebody I don't know not very wisely said that I could use my um, classes from my master's program within a certain amount of period toward a PhD, and so that's made that convenient. And so. So again, just a function of convenience. I'm never going to be a laptop, you know, or, you know, benchtop scientist or, or any of that stuff. Um, you know, and I, I really did the PhD because I really craved learning more about cows, but, mm-hmm. but more for the practical application, not necessarily for, for publishing journals or, or, or doing, doing some of that stuff. So, um, and I worked under two different advisors in my master's and PhD program. So, so I think I did get a little bit of diversity of experience, but but really, truly, just a function of of economics is why and convenience is why I did the inbred deal. Well, I I threw you off there, just give, giving you a little grief there. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I I I always joke that I have an MBA 
and my wife, who does have a Juris Doctorate and is a lawyer, rolls her eyes because she knows I'm talking about a Master's of Beef Advocacy. Um, right. but, <laughs> but I'm happy with uh, my uh, my uh, deg- my degree there from Montana State University's College of Agriculture. But uh, I guess uh, we'll we'll get back on trail here. We'll get out of the sagebrush, but. You, you you went through these uh you know uh these educational opportunities that that presented yourself and you mentioned that you know uh you, you really didn't see much opportunity to come back to a place and since your dad managed it so how 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 did we get from you know the higher education and back back on the operation and, and towards uh, your your future goals yeah no good question so so i worked in extension i had about a uh almost a 15 year career in extension i started out as a county director and county agent um a small county and and um became a regional livestock specialist and and did a lot of work here in in arizona and um in 2013 i um had the opportunity my dad wanted to retire and i had the opportunity to go back to the ranch and and i did a little bit different than than he did i um very i don't know foolishly today in today's cattle market but um I asked in as part of my transition to going back to production agriculture, if I could buy the cow herd and lease a ranch and then also do kind of cool stuff with the Santa Fe ranch foundation. That was a ranch I grew up on that was now owned by a family foundation. And so they, they were very happy knowing the the profit margin and the beef (laughs) business to do that. (laughs) And so um, anyway, but it, but it really, really kind of filled, um, kind of some a goal that i'd had for a long time to be involved in and in, and in, in, you know i always had a few cows with my dad and so forth and and always helped and so forth but but to to legitimately be in the beef in you know business um and so that that really helped helped me and allowed them to have a phd on staff with their you know to help with the foundation's educational activities and things like that so so that so that blend really really worked well for for both sides and i think any good relationship as 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 you know as a married man um there's got to be some compromise on both sides and it's got to be good for both sides and and this really really was and and continues to be um to this day so that that's how i transitioned to to production but when i was with extension um one of our NCBA um, presidents from Arizona, Andy Grossetta, along with Jeff Mangus, started a um, youth movement with NCBA. And so they, they developed and got some funding to, prov- um, to put on a speech contest and quiz bowl and livestock judging contest and so forth during the NCBA um, annual meeting and cattle industry conference. And so um, through that, um, because I run some judging contests, it, down here in Arizona, I became involved in helping put those contests on for NCBA, and um, some of the some of the NCBA staff um, decided that um, I didn't mess it up too bad, and so they invited me back to kind of help, even when it wasn't in Arizona. And so that's how I kind of got started helping with um, the cattle industry conference and, and the convention. And while that was happening, they also asked me to help. Mr. Todd McCartney, who was kind of ramrodding the stockmanship and stewardship um, demonstration arena. And so Todd McCartney, Kurt Pate, and Ron Gill are kind of, I call them the godfathers of stockmanship and stewardship because they've been on a road and they did a two-year tour of auction barns and took it all to the masses and brought it to NCBA and um, kind of started that. So I kind of just started as a roadie on that deal. And, um, you know, moving panels and actually the first time that Todd and I worked together, we were in Tampa and, um, we didn't have panels at the fairgrounds that we were using to set up both the judging contest and the, and the demonstration stuff. And so we found this old guy on the side of the road selling panels and we waited till he went to sleep and we stole his panels and set them up. And, you know, that anyway, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we didn't know if we were going to have to take them back, and, you know, but the fairgrounds manager said, well, he's parked on our property. So yeah, go ahead and use them. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> anyway, we had a great time and, and, and Todd and I have, have had a great, great, working relationship because he is very meticulous and detail oriented and just is just a as good a guy as you can find and and um anyway so complimented a lot of my shortcomings and and so anyway during during that time and kind of being a roadie 
you know, we see a lot of demonstrations in the stockmanship and stewardship. And I tell you, I drank the Kool-Aid listening to um, Kurt and Ron, you know, talk about some of the different principles of stockmanship. And, and um, you just can't help but absorb it. And they're just two wonderful, wonderful educators, each with their own style. And um, really, really kind of saw things that I did that, comp, you know, were, you know, were, part of good stockmanship and stewardship and also recognized a lot of the stuff that I did growing up and, and continue to do were not good parts. And so, um, again, wanting to continue that learning and continuing that, um, I really studied it and, you know, got some resources from those guys and, you know, asked a lot of questions. And so, so eventually, um, got to where, um, they asked me to do a couple of presentations because I knew I'd kind of been helping and and studying this and so that's kind of where i got my start so i'm by far the junior member of that stockmanship and stewardship team but um very proud to just even be associated with them and and um you know and i'm getting better i mean really really truly and honestly um it's an intimidating topic to present especially to people that have been doing it their entire life um you know because i certainly don't know any more than they do um, but hopefully I can bring a little different perspective and kind of share some stuff, you know, combining some of the research that you know, like Dr. Grandin has done and some of the, you know, other kind of stuff from the horse world that Kurt brings and some of the, you know, really good science-based stuff that Ron brings and kind of blending all of that, you know, with some practicality and, you know, how to be a good stockman and how to, you know, decrease that stress when you're handling, you know, your animals, whether that's your horse, whether that's, your dog, whether that's your livestock, whether that's your family, your workers, whoever it is, but, you know, kind of getting that ultimate goal to where, you know, everything works better and, and, and smoother. Question that I have for producers of all ages, whether they're just coming back to an operation, maybe they've been there 10 years with the folks, or maybe they're, uh, they're 50, 60 years old and they've been there for, for, for a few decades. What is your answer to them if they asked you, why do I need to do BQA? Yeah, so good. I, and I totally ignored the BQA part. No, no worries, no worries. Question, I mean, but, I, I think but, they all come together, but uh, I mean, it, because really they got to take these steps, whether it's attending the, the you know, convention or, or the stockmanship and stewardship. Uh, why, why should they take these steps? Yeah, I tell you, this, the BQA thing, I, I've drank that Kool Aid for a long, long time. Um, you know, again, with extension, that was one of our, you know, beef programs that we did. But, um, you know, and I knew that as a producer and educator that it was important. But I, I tell you, if you if we look at today's beef industry, you know, I used to used to think, you know, especially when I got really back into the production side that I was in the cow calf business. And I'm truly not. I'm truly in the beef business. I'm truly in, in and, and I've got to connect with those consumers because those consumers today um, and we've seen this trend for a long time. You see it more than I do, Wayne. But these consumers want to know where that beef comes from, how it was raised, and how it was treated. And that's at the core of what Beef Quality Assurance does. It helps to guarantee to our consumers that we're raising a safe and wholesome product in a responsible manner. And so regardless of where you're at in the beef industry, those principles of BQA must be practiced Um and, and I firmly, firmly believe that, and I'll share that with anybody um, that, that wants to hear that, that we need to do a good job and we need to give our consumers that confidence and give them permission to feel good about partaking in what I think is a premier protein product, beef. Now, as I jump back to stockmanship and stewardship, uh, I'm going to just throw the dates out there. Uh, again, this is... I don't. Hopefully, these dates don't change due to the Corona situation. But uh, uh, the 2020 tour dates for the Stockmanship and Stewardship event—they're going to be in Elko, Nevada. Um, we are looking at August 12th through the 13th in Ontario, Oregon, August 21st through the 22nd, Durango, Colorado, August 28th through the 29th, Daneville, Indiana. The that is September 11th through September 12th, and then Bowling Green, Kentucky. That will be October 30th through 31st. So for our listeners out there that haven't attended a stockmanship and stewardship event before, what what's in store for them? I mean, this is a wide-ranging, this covers a large part of the country, different parts. 
what what can they uh, take back to their operation and and feel like it's going to help their bottom lines and you know ease stress on themselves and their animals? Well, I, I tell you, thanks for a good partnership with Mark Animal Health that they're bringing us this regional tour. But each one of those locations has got a local committee that has put this proposal together um, to host these regional um, tour dates. And so they're going to have, in addition to stockmanship and stewardship training, they're going to have a whole plethora of different um, education-related to beef quality assurance. But I, I, I promise you that from the stockmanship and animal handling perspective, um, you're going to get either Kurt or Ron or I or, or a combination thereof of, of, of people that um, are – all three of us have been involved in education. All three of us have been involved in, in the production end of it. And so um, they're going to be able to take home some tips and some different pieces of low-stress animal handling and being effective in your stockmanship and how you're handling your animals – um, you're going to be able to take that home, regardless of whether you at home work cattle on foot, whether you work them on horseback, whether you work them with an ATV. You're going to be able to take tips that will reduce stress on those animals, reduce stress on your crew. Um, you know, when we talk about crew, many times our crew, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, right now, you know, with the, all the schools being closed down, we got a lot of extra labor on these farms and ranches that, that you know, our family those are the most important people that we need to be taken care of in our life. And so um, being able to do that in a low stress manner to where those young people look forward to going out and working cattle with, with their parents or, um, you know, or even spouses would get along working cattle together. Um, I, you know, I think ultimately our goal is, is to reduce that stress and to um, be able to get some of those little different tips and tidbits that will help make that, make that smoother and better you, you know dean i think that's such an uh, an important point to bring up uh, looking forward to work cattle um i have many friends i mean certain times for myself when yeah i just know my dad might be in that mood where it's just like oh if i do one thing he, he's gonna be yelling mainly because he can't hear very well uh, but uh uh, how what what are some of the experiences you've uh, you've heard from people or maybe through yourself on on how maybe coming back to an operation it was kind of soured in their mouth because they just didn't have a good uh, working relationship with with their family or with whoever it was uh, just in the management and, and working cattle I, I know that sounds like like oh why would people focus on that but uh, you know it's a little bit of a mental thing there when 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 uh when when you're really looking at a stressful situation not just for cows but for but for the people working with you as well oh it's 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 a huge part of that um and you, you think about you know like young people you know i talk I, i've got a 22 year old son and 25 year old daughter um you know and i and i'm very conscious of how i interact with them and and um and i'm trying to be very proactive as far as you know being positive and so forth but um, you know, the most common thing is, is, is that you hear is, oh, dad's going to yell at me or mom's going to yell at me if, you know, I'm in the wrong place or I'm too late or too quick or I'm getting in, you know, or whatever it is. And so there's a lot of fear that's put in, you know, kind of the same thing we do to our cattle or our horses. You know, we, we try to make them do what we want through fear by putting too much pressure. And so when we put too much pressure on something, you, you automatically, you know, and I'm maybe stereotyping here, but you cause a fight or flight instinct. And so that's never, never a good place to um, be if you want to learn. And so, so trying to positively change those relationships. Um, and, and I, I'll get, I'll share one with you. One of, you know, my good friend, Todd McCartney from Throckmorton, Texas, who works with me on the stockmanship and stewardship deals. When he has labor come in, whether that's either and his family is tired of hearing this, and so they know it, and it's ingrained. But if somebody new comes in, if he can get them to do two things, these two things make so much difference in the way the day goes. The first thing is is to remove pressure when an animal responds. And so give that animal the reward. So if you're trying to push her through a gate or um, push her up an alley or do whatever, when she responds, if you'll back that pressure off and let her do her thing um, – and uh, apply the pressure correctly and remove that pressure correctly. If a person can do that, number one, and then number two, be quiet. So no yelling, no whooping, no hollering. If they can be quiet, if they can do those two things, he'll guarantee that 
you're going to have a pretty good day working cattle as compared to, to not doing it. And so, tr- so translating that to, to family and trying to teach our, our, um, you know, family members that are working with us, um, and being setting a positive example and doing those two things. And I'll, and I'll extend that to, you know, when we put pressure on our kids or put pressure on our spouses or when, when that pressure is put on us, um, remember how to relieve that. And so I think those are kind of some important principles that, that if we think about it and are conscious about it, um, and then really try to be quiet working cattle, that's harder to do than you think. Um, but, but really, really important to do because it, it really pays some big dividends. Dean, as we look back to, to your education in animal science, uh, with, with that foundation, uh, how has that really uh, improved your outlook on, on, on livestock genetics? Uh, I, I know you did mention to me that uh, you have a, a, an addiction. You mentioned that to me at the uh, <laughs> Cattlemen's College lunch that I was emceeing, and you were a part of, uh, of that discussion on the main stage about that. You have a certain addiction, and I don't want to upset anybody that's listening right now, so I'm going to let you claim <laughs> what that addiction is. Well, I, 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 I am a... a um... And, and I mean this in the most positive way, but I'm a recovering Hereford breeder. And um, we grew up, we raised registered Herefords. And, um, you know, again, with the with the rise of the Angus, um, you know, the, the favor for them and the markets and so forth. Um, and then we also here locally, we raised a lot of seed stock bulls that we would ship to Mexico and a peso devalued. And so a combination of different things kind of put us out of the Hereford business. But I sure have a fondness for for those good cows that we had and and one of the best cows that one of my favorite cows i'm not gonna say the best but one of my favorite cows is that black baldy mama um and so um i really really you know there was only one way to make a good black baldy mama is either a herford mom or herford dad Mm -hmm. so i think incorporating those herford genetics back into some of some of our, our our genetics is important the only free lunch, I think, and I'm stealing this quote from somebody, I don't know who, but the only free lunch we really get in the, in the, in the commercial cow-calf business is that heterosis. And so, um, you know, some of the work that the American Hereford Association has done in identifying the diversity of their, of their gene pool um, really indicates that, that that part of the reason why that black baldy cow is so um, has more longevity and has, has got that maternal ability and so forth is because of the, the diversity of genes that that Hereford has that crosses well with, with a lot of different breeds and is complementary. So I incorporate a little bit of Hereford genetics. I'm still an Angus-based commercial cow-calf deal, and I've got a and, and I probably shouldn't even admit this, but this is even a worse admission than, <laughs> than my previous one, but I also raised some club calves. And so um, what I'm trying to do is to, to add value to that calf crop. Um, and, you know, again, I, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I know that in my business model to become profitable, I've either got to decrease expenses or increase income, uh, you know, just getting back to the foundation. And so if I'm able to try to add a little value through some club calves and some, some you know, per, portion of my herd, then hopefully that will translate into some more sustainability and some more profitability. And so... So that that's what I'm trying to do. So, what other tips do you have for commercial cow calf operators out there? You know, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think uh, the black baldy is just just a supreme example of uh, of an opportunity for producers, and so many do in the countryside take advantage of uh, uh, genetic selection like that. But what are some things that you've picked up uh, over the past few decades in looking at those genetics and and making sure that we're looking at that bottom line of the operation to make more money or cut those expenses? Well, I, I think right now we are in a, and they, they probably say this every five years, but I, I truly, truly believe that we're on we're on on the cusp of some really cool, cool changes and 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 some really good innovations in the beef industry. Um, you know, I'm excited about what this next generation of um, you know ranchers and farmers and that are committed to the beef industry are, are going to do. I get a chance to work with the interns that come to the NCBA convention, and you know they're all either graduate students or last two years of undergrad and man, there's so much enthusiasm and energy and, you know, and, and, and intelligence there that I'm excited with what 
about what they're going to do in the beef industry. But, you know, thinking about, you know, right now we have unprecedented um, information about the genetics that we're using. Um, so looking looking at, you know, like my generation, um, you know, EPDs were kind of a big deal, right? You know, and that, that's kind of where we started trying to identify some of those superior genetics. Now thinking about the genomic enhanced um, EPDs and the different indexes and the different ways that, that we're able to start kind of teasing out what that genetic information is going to translate to um, is exciting. Um, now saying that, um, as a producer, you've got to be committed to a program, committed to setting some goals, committed to, you know, if, you, if you're retaining ownership, then you need to look at those carcass genetics. Um, you know, if you're raising replacement heifers, you need to look at some, you know, some more maternal side. We have the tools available to start really identifying those sires that, and, the, you know, and I focus on the sire side because that in a commercial outfit, that's kind of where you're going to make your most rapid genetic progress. Um, but selecting those sires that are appropriate for your environment and that are going to help you to reach your goals. And so we, like I said, have unprecedented tools that are that are available and are going to become available to us to get get that, that kind of stuff done. So the genetic side. Man, it's it's wide open. And I don't care if you like Angus or Herefords or Cimitals or Charlie, whatever it is, use the best ones within that breed that you can afford um, that are suitable for your environment and your production system. Um, and and you're going to be you're going to be well off. So now you got the genetic part um, taken care of um, that beef quality assurance part. I think that, um, you know, we have so many different value added programs that we can participate in. Some of them are going to work for you. Some of them aren't. Um, but I think that you need to take advantage of some of those. If, if, if you've got a good vaccination program and you're weaning them, um, make sure that you use that in your marketing of those calves. If you um, can, you know, if you want to participate in an all natural type program or, or whatever that is, but, but find some of those value added programs that fit your production system and try to capture that value. If you're doing the work, um, you, you've got to get paid for it. And, um, it's foolish not to the old days of giving them a seven or eight way at, at branding and, and sending them to the auction barn and saying they've had the works. Um, you know, there's still going to be a lot of people that do that, you know, just because of necessity. But if you're going to stay relevant in this beef industry, you've got to look at those value added programs. You've got to look at your genetics, um, make sure you're, you're kind of under a BQA program um, and so forth. So anyway, those are a couple of the different areas that I see that, um, we kind of capture some more value for for our cattle. We've also got to be strategic about our inputs. Um, you know, if you go around that trade show at the at at the cattle industry conference or you know different farm conferences, you know, there's acres and acres of things that we can spend our money on. Um, but being careful, and and all of those have an application, um, or they wouldn't be successful selling them. Um, but we've got to be careful about which ones we apply that are going to going to return um give us a return on our investment and some of them are certainly going to be really really good and some of them in our situation won't so um um you know i I think so being part of a value-added program being part of a bqa program and and making sure that we're using appropriate genetics i think are all keys to to hopefully some profitability Obviously, you shared the example that uh, you had the opportunity to, to go back and, and help manage the operation that your dad once managed. Uh, you were able to run the cattle, own the cattle there, and, and still work in uh, conjunction with the Santa Fe Ranch. What What is your tip to other young people out there that don't have that opportunity to go back to a family-owned business or they can't afford to uh, to buy a section of land at this time and, and uh, it, the event where they can go lease a place or, or work with a nonprofit that owns property where they can go and, and be a part of this lifestyle that we all so much love. What, what are some tips? What are some do's? What are some do nots? Uh, what, what, what would you give a young, a young couple that is looking at this today? Boy, I, I, that's, that's a tough question. I, th- I think that there, and I don't, I don't know how, but we've got to be able to connect um, the opportunities with those young people that are that are excited about it because I think that the stereotype with with the older generations is, is that you know 
um, you know, these millennials don't want to work anymore. And, and, um, um, and that's not, I haven't found that to be true at all. I find a lot of young people that are really excited about the beef industry and, you know, some are, are pretty good stockmen. Some are pretty good cowboys. Some are pretty good, you know, this or that. And, and so I think that there's a disconnect between young people that want to be involved in the industry and the older generations that have the ability to include them. I also, in addition, I think we mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, like for example, my own son, and I don't, I don't have an operation yet big enough for, for two families to live on, but you know, he's going to make a lot more money working for Purina or, or, um, you know, a trainer or somebody like that than he would coming back. And so, um, anyway, there's a disconnect there that, that we need to try to help bridge. So for a young person, I, I think that, um, continuing to learn is, is a big part of it, getting as much experience as they can get, um, that's relevant in the beef industry is going to make them very marketable. Um, and then also trying to pay attention to those opportunities. So, um, you know, you're going to have to pay some dues and you're going to have to, um, you know, do some things that, that, um, as far as working that are going to be very difficult. And so I, I don't know how to express it other than that, than just paying attention, um, keeping your eyes open, um, continuing to learn and, um, you know, maintaining your integrity. Um, you know, the reputation, you know, is everything. And, and, um, you know, if you're an honest, hardworking person, I think that good things happen, but, the hard thing about that is being patient. Um, you know, I was, um, 40 years old before my first opportunity presented itself. And so, um, and that's, that's tough to do. And you're 41 now. <laughs> well, plus <laughs> <must> change. <laughs> but, but Dean, how important is the role of land grant universities and extension services in the future of agriculture? And what are some steps that they need to take to make sure that they are staying up to speed in, in how fast agriculture trends change? Well, and you hit that right on the head. I mean, our land grant universities have, you know, the, the three prog mission. They need to be educators. They need to do apply, you know, uh, you know, research that is applicable to, to agriculture, you know, and then the extension part of the translating that research to, to on the ground, um, they need to stay relevant. And, um, and it's hard because I know that it, it costs a lot of money to continue to, um, do animal research and to have animal facilities, but they need to be on the cutting edge of, um, you know, answering those questions that we have in the industry. And so, um, and then having vibrant extension systems that are supported by whichever work, you know, whichever branch of government or however those universities are funded, but having vibrant extension um, services available in these rural areas is, is vital. Um, you know, I know, for example, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, I was, I wouldn't have been able to go to college or, you know, do anything if I did not have that 4-H experience. And so even though it's not, um, you know, if, if you're a grant funder, it's not real sexy to, to um, fund traditional 4-H extension type programming, but that is a critical piece of a lot of young rural um, kids' lives to be able to have an opportunity to, to be involved in the agriculture industry. And so, so having a vibrant extension that is staying relevant, that is um, – you know, paying attention to research and that's going to change over time. I mean, the, the internet now I'm sounding like an old guy here, Lane, forgive <laughs> me, but, but you know, the internet has leveled the playing field of knowledge. So think about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, if you wanted to get knowledge, um, you either had to go to a library or, or go to, to a university or college. Um, now with the internet, a lot of that information, the majority of that information, some of the good and some of the bad, you got to pay attention to your source. But um, a lot of that knowledge is available to anyone right off that phone. I mean, I can be riding my horse and I could figure out who the, you know, what, what the capital of Timbuktu is, right? You know, I, I don't have to go to the encyclopedia or whatever. I can find that right on my phone. And so that knowledge is, knowledge has then there is being accessible to a lot more people. And so that land grant university has to be able to continue to derive that good science-based knowledge and, to, uh, and to disseminate that in a way that, that people can get to. 
And so I think that land grant university um, is critical to the continued, um, you know, success of our food and fibers, you know, system here in the United States. Um, but they've got to be real careful about saying relevant. And that, the other thing too, is I think we're going to see a lot of changes in how that information is delivered. And we're seeing that. Um, and I think there's going to be different partnerships and different ways that, that, um, you know, we're going to see some consolidation, you know, because I don't think everybody can be everything that we wanted to be in the past. And so, um, you know, there's going to probably be centers that will, you know, these will be more reproduction centers or these will be more nutrition or, or whatever they are or more equine or more whatever. Um, you know, we're going to see, again, some of that reduction, some of that concentration, but uh, we, we've got to continue to support them as taxpayers. we got to continue to support them as alumni and, um, you know, and, and also hold them to task as well. So when, when you uh, look out every single morning, having a cup of coffee, looking at the operation, what, what, what is your hope of, of where uh, agriculture will go? Maybe not just for your operation, but the livestock industry in general. Where do you hope to see some positive uh, uh, trends, uh, whether it be stockmanship and stewardship, BQA practices? What, what are some, what, what, if, if, if the world was yours to be had, to have the perfect plan forward, what, what are some of those key things that agriculture needs to do today or just some, some simple, or the simple look at things? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, so, so from a consumer standpoint, because I, I try to think about, you know, from a consumer perspective, and I and also try to think about someone who is maybe not, um, not on board with, with me raising animals as as protein. Um, so trying to think about what would their criticisms be, you know, I, I would hope that um, I as a producer could invite somebody who had those views onto my place and there would be not a single thing that I would be embarrassed about to show them or practice that I do. And so I think that's going to be continued evolution of beef quality assurance and stockmanship programs is for us to all continually to get, continue to get better at what we do. Um, and, and making sure that, that we're thinking about that from a consumer perspective. Um, I think that we also, you know, and again, I, I don't know that, I don't know the right answer, but, um, we need to make sure that the role of the agriculture producer is valued um, and understood that um, we are producing a safe and wholesome product. Um, you know, you think about the um, alternative, um, you know, protein products that are out there, the alternative meat um, products that are out there, you know, those have been available since even I was a kid, um, you know, in the freezer section. Here's the difference. The difference is now that instead of marketing toward the um, vegetarian or mar- marketing toward the you know far, if you will, um, the far left person, um, they're marketing toward people like me that normally eat beef, and they're trying to um, make them feel like they're making a a choice that is better for the environment or better for their health or. Or, or whatever it is that's that's the difference now and so we we again as i mentioned before we need to give our consumers our good beef consumers permission to feel good about what we're doing but we in turn need to make sure that we're doing it in a safe and responsible way you mentioned that that trust that consumers have or should have in producers and vice versa as we look at the situation and the panic, whether it's in the in the in the marketplace, uh, uh, financial wise, or actually in the marketplace when, when we look at the grocery store, just the panic that has occurred in panic buying. You walk down, or I mean, I've seen it here in Bozeman, Montana, where there is there's no protein on the shelves, and that's across this whole nation. But and I'm not, I mean, I've seen this on dozens of pictures that the fake alternative proteins they're still on the shelf. People still go back to that, uh, that, that that trust that they have in protein like beef being in the grocery store. And we've seen a lot of producers that have beef on hand or they have their own branded beef products use this as an opportunity to reach out and say, hey, we know there's not beef in the grocery stores. We have beef. 
uh, how, how can we help you get uh, meat on your table during this uncertain time, during this panic? But I, I think this is a big opportunity, though, how farmers and ranchers do not need to be cynical about this whole situation. They need to say, hey, we are here every single day. We provide the food and fiber for for this nation. Uh, don't, uh, you know, it, we get taken for granted a lot of the time. But I think this is a time where we positively showcase the role that farmers and ranchers play here in the United States with food security. Um, and I've seen a lot of people within the agriculture community take this as an opportunity to, to almost uh, shame uh, consumers for, for not really understanding where their food comes from. And there should be a little bit of that shaming, but to an extent. But I think this is an educational opportunity to, to talk about where food comes from and how how uh, it, how it's raised and how beef, for example, is, is raised sustainably out on the countryside. Amen, brother. Amen. Preach on. I, I, I agree with you. And, I, and like I said, I, I, I want to be careful about the what I call the ag morality complex of you know of of trying to shame consumers into into that. And so, um, again, being positive and and talking about what we do and sharing what we do is it's it's a wonderful opportunity right now, despite the uncertain times, to do that. Dean, I know you're probably pretty busy down there. At least it's warm. It's only about 10 degrees here in Montana today. So I, I hope your weather's a little nicer than it is up here. You know, I was actually in Bozeman um, last week doing a little work for uh, Sustainable Ag. Well, thanks and, for the um, call. Yeah. We could have done <laughs> hey, this podcast then. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, were, we were pretty jam-packed with, with all the uncertainty of getting stuff done. But um Anyway, I had a nice, nice time up there. It was a nice, almost springtime up there, and I left just in time. And I'm down here at 70 degrees and um, pretty nice, so I'm not trying to rub that in, but um, it's a nice place I, I, to I live. wish I was saying I was self-distancing, you know, last <laughs> week, you know, to, that's why we couldn't meet up. No, um, right. again, I, 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 we've been talking here for, for just uh, under 50 minutes any last thoughts that you have for the the young men and women listening to this or or just the the cattle producers in general that that tune into this show any last tips and, and maybe why they should look maybe if they can attend that stockmanship stewardship event here coming up this summer well i i, I think that um anybody that attends those things are gonna gonna get some valuable things that they can take back to their operation or at least to think about um you know i think for young people continue continue to seek knowledge continue to seek learning um and that may be you know through practical applied stuff that may be through you know actually having to read a book or doing some of that stuff but continue to have that thirst for knowledge because again they're you know they're the ones that are going to continue to revolutionize and change this beef industry and and to continue to make it better and so i i i just um I continue to pray that they work hard, that they, that they have um, faith that they, um, you know, retain their integrity and, and um, I'm excited to see what they're going to do for the future of this industry. My last question is, do you still raise goats? You know, that's a funny question. I was talking about the leveling of the playing field and I um, actually learned how to AI goats um, off of YouTube. And so that, that was, that was kind of, that was a nice, Again, I probably shouldn't admit this, but, but uh, anyway, I, I do raise a few goats, um, kind of a show goat deal. Um, you know, I expanded my cattle deal a couple of years ago, and so I have less time. They take a lot of time to do it correctly, and so I, I cut way, way back on those, and I'm concentrating on cattle. But goat, the show goat deal was, was pretty fun. Well, I saw your flyer at the Cattle Industry Convention about uh, goat yoga with Dean Fish. Uh, how, how did that session go? Well, it was good, but I ended up having to bring a bunch of weaned calves in because I ran out of goats. And so, you know, we had some injuries and some other stuff go, go bad. But um, and and the manure is not quite as conducive to yoga from a you know a scouring calf. So anyway, <laughs> I think we're going to have to regroup and, and, and try something different. There. Yeah, well, I'll make sure and get to it next year. I know at 3.30 <laughs> in the morning is just too early for, for me. <laughs> right. You know. right. But, well, you got to milk them goats. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
Oh, well, um, namaste, Dean. Uh, but uh, hey, thank you so much for, for taking time and uh, sharing sharing a little bit of your story. And I know I'll continue to see you at events uh, across uh, the nation, especially during the cattle industry convention. But for our friends at home that maybe uh, want to learn more about you, the, the Anchor F Cattle Company, I actually didn't even mention the, na- the name of your operation, but, uh, but also the... Uh, the Santa Fe Ranch and just uh, your outreach in general. Uh, where can folks go to learn more about you? Well, again, we're on that you know on that bookface machine, and you look up the Santa Fe Ranch Foundation and kind of see what we're up to. We do a lot of really cool stuff with um, you know trying to get kids out of doors, and we work with developmentally disabled people, and and some really really cool stuff. And um, you know, I've got a little Anchor F Cattle page on there as well, but. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I, and uh, Facebook's probably about the about the best way, and, and um, to kind of just see what's going on, and you know, we try to share a little bit about what's happening on the ranch there, and 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 so forth. And just again, before we sign off, I I want to thank you, Lane, for for having me on, for thinking of having me on. That's very kind of you, but um, I'm really proud of what you're doing, and 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 your voice is very very important, and so we. We appreciate what you're doing, and I think this this podcast is really, really cool addition to your portfolio. Well, thank you, Dean. That means a lot, and like I always joke, but it is a true part of it. It does help pay for my cows, but uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy doing it, and I, I enjoy uh, sharing people's stories and, and sharing that advice to, to everyone that tunes in. And uh, again, for our friends listening, uh, Merck Animal Health, the big uh, sponsor of the Stockmanship and Stewardship Tour, uh, those tour dates are going to be hitting Elko. Elko, Nevada, Ontario, Oregon, Durango, Colorado, Daneville, Indiana, and Bowling Green, Kentucky. Uh, for more information on those locations, if they are near you, more details can be found online at stockmanshipandstewardship.org. And more than likely, Dean will will be there with Todd, Ron, and Kurt. Uh, and I tell you what, uh, it, it's a great opportunity to just get there, uh, sit, meet some great people, and, and learn. And I think that that is one of your key messages here today is never quit learning. Um, Dean, anything else that you want to share with us here today? I know. Good. Thank you again. Appreciate you having me on. All right. Again, Dr. Dean Fish, thank you so much for joining us here on the Cattleman's Call podcast, friends. Thanks for answering the Cattleman's Call. If there is a topic or someone you would like to be featured on the Cattleman's Call, just make sure and send us a note on our website. That uh, webpage is found on ncba.org. Just find the Cattleman's Call page when you are visiting there. All right, friends, that will do it for today. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.